Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I'm speaking with Jason Chinundit, Patriot alumni of the class of 2013. While at Davidson Day, Jason was an active member of our theatre and AFAR programs. After Davidson Day, Jason enrolled at Wake Forest University, where he earned a double major in anthropology and philosophy and minored in entrepreneurialism. He now works at Gartner Inc. as a human resource advisory specialist. Jason, I'm thrilled that you're here. You're our first alumnus that I've had the pleasure to interview. Thank you for joining me to share your perspective and experiences as a graduate of Davidson Day. I thought we would start our conversation by talking about your time at Davidson Day, how old were you when, we, when you started at the school, and what are some of your fondest memories of that time? Yeah, well, I started at Davidson Day in 2004. I was nine. It's been a huge part of my life. My youngest sister actually graduated from here two years ago. We were just walking the halls as we were coming up here, and you were looking at the different posters from all the different performances, and you were saying you were in every place since from what grade? From seventh grade to 12th grade, so from when I graduated. Started, I actually did the musical before Miss Gertie got here, and... It was high school musical. I played Ryan amongst like other high school aged people, but I was in sixth grade. So I looked way younger than everyone else. <laughs> and to think that that's where it all started. And then several years later, we ended up in Twelfth Night and that was my last play here. And it was, it was amazing. I loved doing theater here and I kind of discovered theater here. It was not only the first thing I felt like I was really good at, it was also the first community I kind of got to surround myself with and be like, this is my people. These are the the, the people I want to be around, the friends I want to have, which like I had played sports, but I'm not a competitive person, which is really hard for a lot of people to grasp. Like, you grow up, and I think the de facto thing is to put your kid into, you know, play soccer. Let them run around, get your, my girlfriend calls them the zoomies. Like, get that, <laughs> get that out of your system. And that worked, but I also got very distracted as a kid. So I would be, like, off chasing butterflies on the defensive side of the ball while, you know, the other team scoring on our goal. So theater came in a time when, you know, middle school, you're trying to, like, figure out what am I good at, what do I like doing? And then, you know, I just found that, I didn't have stage fright in the same way that a lot of kids did. So, you know, that's what I did. And then eventually my voice dropped and I couldn't sing anymore. And so we stopped doing musicals as a school. We just stopped it. And <laughs> I did only straight plays, which means, you know, plays with no music, no singing required from uh, seventh grade to 12th grade. And I think that was probably both Miss Gertie working with what she had, but also knowing that I couldn't do a musical, like, for the, for the life of me. And so what was your journey to start doing that? Like, did someone have to prompt you and, like, oh, you should try joining the theater department? How did you decide to make that leap and realize it was something that you really loved? Like with anything, you know, you're coaxed into it by teachers, by other students, somebody to this day, I don't know who, signed me up to audition for, I think, like a winter music, like you sung a song in front mm -hmm. of people. And then that's where I kind of discovered that I liked doing the performing thing. And I thought that was attached to music. And then a year or two later, voice drops, can't sing anymore. What I can do is I can talk. And my mom will tell you that I have no problem being really, really loud all the time. So it's like, you know, the thing that they always tell kids is like, you got to project, you got to speak with your diaphragm. I did that already. Okay. I like already had the basics down. That wasn't a problem for me at all. Yeah. <laughs> and then you said you found your people. And I imagine the further you were 
along in your career at Davidson Day, like you were sort of setting the the tone. You'd been, you know, part of this program for a long time. And like, how did you go about sort of welcoming people in? I'm sure you had others who were waiting in the wings, like, oh, is this for me? It sounds like a very collaborative, warm environment. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, theater is the gateway to people learning that life isn't a zero-sum game, Mm. that there's not always winners and losers, right? Life isn't graded on a bell curve. There really can be an effort where you all put it in and you all work really hard and you create something beautiful, which is the end product that people see on the stage. And that's job well done for everyone. You know, it's not, if you don't win the state championship, you you failed in some way. It's like, no, we, at the end of this, we worked really hard and we created this thing. And for a lot of people, I think that's their first time getting that picture. I'll hear from a lot of my friends in the theater community, you know, we'll talk about, yeah, the world's so competitive. And like in some ways, theater is competitive, you know, auditioning and, and competing for roles. But once you're really in that creative process, it becomes a what can I do to be better at this to support you and push you forward and, and you know, raise your star, if you will. As you talk about that, it just sounds like just such an incredibly positive experience and like such a way to bond with people. I was fortunate I had that in sports is like once you got selected, then you were, you were part of it. But I, I really, that whole part of sort of being the behind the scenes and all of that. And I imagine the rush of the opening night must be sort of very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. And it's, it is different in that with a team, the team doesn't change demonstrably Mm. from year to year with every play, every cast is different. People change, people come in, people come out and, you know, you learn to adapt to that change and find how personalities work with one another. Not indifferent to how you go about life. You know, people move away, people come into your life, people move out of your life, and you figure out where you fit in a group. I think in terms of building a community, a community has culture, has kind of these predetermined rules or or social norms. And I think within the Davidson Day theater community, you know, it starts at the top. It starts with Miss Gertie. She is the bright, shining light that we all follow. And then once that's kind of set, and it has been set for so long, you find the people who are regular mainstays in the productions, but also, you know, backstage, people who work on costumes, people who... That was the other thing is like, it's so much more than just acting or singing. There are people who are really passionate about stage production, you know, the ins and outs of getting people ready, the operations, the guts, if you will, of the, of the whole thing. And within that community, you really find there's like love and support at that core. So again, one of the highlights of, I think everyone has that or seeks to have that moment of, I found my group of people, I found my thing. And that was my thing, you know? So I was lucky in that way. And did you pursue it once you left Davidson Day? Did you continue to do theater? You know, there were several years where, in college, two years where I didn't do any theater, and it wasn't for lack of trying. I auditioned for stuff, but, you know, it just didn't get selected. And then as I kind of worked into, you know, the theater community and had an opportunity to take a couple of classes. Really, I needed some more formal training. I started getting parts and fell in a lot of ways back in love with theater and performing and theater at Wake Forest. And and so that was kind of a whole different chapter of my college career. It's my understanding that you also participated in the Afar program as well. What was that like for you? Yeah. A funny story about that. So I started my love affair with digging in the dirt. Um, (laughs) Started with a trip to Disney World. My dad went to the curio shop, like right next to the dinosaur pit. And the dinosaur pit is where people, you know, dig and they slowly amass these giant concrete bones that are totally set in the ground. You can't move them. And he bought a little velociraptor claw and he put it in the dirt, which I was like, 
I had no idea about. My dad fooled me several times, and this was one of them. <laughs> of course, I went and started digging, and he's like, Jason, dig over here. So I go and I dig and I find this thing. And it was, it's hard to describe the amount of childlike wonder and joy that filled me in that moment. Mm. And it had ramifications of which I don't think even my dad appreciated until decades later. Um, <laughs> because what would then end up happening is Matt Saunders would come to our school. I was in ninth grade and he was going to take a group of seventh and eighth graders to Belize. I was too old to naturally matriculate into this program. So I emailed him because I got his email from somebody and he never replied. So I wasn't on that first trip, <laughs> but I was on three of them after that. And that kind of set me off in my academic journey of being a history kid and figuring out that I really liked discovering history. I liked having that tangible artifact that you could see, touch, relate to, and realizing that that was real academic. Is it a denouement? No? Yes? I don't know. But, you know, it's that come-to-Jesus moment of this is something that I could do for the rest of my life, which is something that I had never had the thought of, not even with theater. And I had been doing theater for so long at that point that that was another thing that happened. So yeah, that experience was amazing, not only because the people that you get to meet and surround yourself with are so driven, but I also got to appreciate what high-level academics did for a living and what it meant to like, nerd out for like your lifetime because I have incredible professional parents. My mom's a doctor and my dad's a lawyer and forever I've known that I don't want to be either of those things. Mm. But to see this other avenue, I was totally smitten with it and decided to pursue that in college and I majored in anthropology which was awesome. Uh, Wake's anthropology program is wonderful. And I also majored in philosophy. And that had huge ramifications. Both that program, my dad gaslighting me into thinking <laughs> that I had discovered our velociraptor claw at Disney World, and the whole night. Saunders himself, you know, it's all been, you know, wonderful. And I know several people who studied anthropology after school, and I can't imagine that there a single one of us would have found that without him. Yeah. Can you go back to that moment with your dad? And you said that it affected you sort of decades later. Can you just unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. So I think the things that happen to us when we're very young affect us on a scale that, you know, the stuff that happens to us later in life doesn't in the same way. I'm not, I'm not saying that like after you're 13, you stop growing. <laughs> um, I'm more saying that there are certain indelible memories that leave marks on you as a person. And that's one of them for me. I wouldn't say it's the biggest one, but it's certainly something that stands out. And like, I think there's also a core set of emotions that you get in a raw form when you're a child and joy, childlike wonder at like what the world is and has to offer, you know, and some of that's born out of naivete, but a, a lot of it is inexperience and a non-jadedness at like mm -hmm. what the world is. And so I try to find those moments as well. Like, you know, when I can, those moments of wonder, amazement, joy, feeling of being like lucky is another one. It's like, those feelings are, are rare, so they stand out for me. Do you feel that you chase those moments as an adult, like you're actively seeking them, like having those really wondrous experiences as a child? Do you think that makes your radar is up and you're scanning the environment looking for them? I would say I'm constantly aware of me trying to find those moments. They're hard. They're yeah. hard to find. They don't come easy. Mm -hmm. But I think when you, like, there's a certain relief 
relief makes it sound like I'm happy it's over. But there's a certain relief when you bow in a show and it's like done. Yeah. You know, it's it's job done, done and dusted. Like all we got to do is pack up the set and we're done. Once that's over, it's like, and you don't get that a whole lot as an adult. You know, and and I'm I'm equating an older memory or a young younger memory. I did air quotes. I realize this is a, a verbal <laughs> uh, medium, but when you take a brief, deep breath and you're like, "That's over, thank God," and you get that gratification of people clapping, the applause, and mm-hmm. you know everybody's hugging, and you know maybe not now, but like everybody <laughs> would be hugging. There's not those moments in life all that often, my corporate ruled life where I get that. And I chase that, you know, like like I enjoy doing these webinar teaching sessions for my company, Gartner. And part of that is like, we'll get a score at the end and the score is attached to the value of a metric. And when that score is high, like it's the best thing. And it's like, you know, you have 300, 200, and like 200 to 300, sometimes 400 people on the line. And to know that you juggled their questions, what they wanted to talk about, and like the presentation was good because I work on the script, I work on the presentation deck, I work on the whole thing. That's such a gratifying feedback loop of this was good. I got real value out of this. I'm glad I spent an hour watching, listening to it. That's the same type of core emotion. So yeah, I would say I definitely sort of chase that, if you will. Are you aware that those moments are happening as they're happening or do you reflect on them later and go, oh, that was really special? I definitely reflect on it. I'm like, you try to live in the moment. You try to appreciate the special things as they're happening. But I just find that for one reason or another, it's just too difficult or all-encompassing if you try to constantly live in the moment. So I try to slow down Mm -hmm. every once in a while and reflect on what those moments were, what they meant to me, how I can do that again, or if, you know, if I want to do it again. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm interested in how do you think coming to school here prepared you for college is one thing, but then sort of the life beyond that? Yeah. I've spoken about Davidson Day preparing me for college before. And, and you know, the, the typical things come up, you know, learning, dry, like curiosity, you know, uh, cultivating that like love of learning is kind of the big takeaway that I always have from that conversation. I think when it comes to life beyond school, beyond, you know, chasing a grade or trying to learn, it's more about finding your passions, figuring out what you want to do, what you have to do, and how to make those two things coincide as much as possible. Mm -hmm. What I really love is that performing, is that getting that instant feedback, but also, you know, putting yourself out there. And, you know, in some ways I get that through my work, in some ways I don't, but it's driving towards that passion and, and understanding that if you don't do it for yourself, Nobody else is going to do it for you. That's, I think, the other thing that a lot of kids don't get, maybe at larger schools, both private and public, it's some agency in dictating what you want to do, what you want to get out of this experience, you'll put into it. And so, you know, the people I think have that have the best experience here are really self-starters in that way, and they and they drive towards what they want out of a high school, middle school experience, which is a hard thing for a kid to do. But, you know, it's also, you know, an important life skill that not everybody gets. Yeah, absolutely. Your path after leaving Davidson Day is a really interesting one. Can you describe your time at Wake Forest and the steps that led you to your current role? Yeah, so my time at Wake was as much about academic discovery as it was personal discovery. I kind of came in knowing I wanted to be an anthropology major 
And I also knew that I wanted to explore history and uh, philosophy. So I knew I wanted to take some classes, a, a broad spectrum of classes, which Wake candidly like primes you to do mm-hmm. through their liberal arts college. So, you know, that was kind of set. And once I realized like, okay, philosophy and anthropology was really what I wanted to do, I kind of took that, ran with it for the first couple of years. And what that kind of head down mentality allowed me to do academically was take on another class here, another class there, or it opened up the possibility for me to add a minor onto my double major. (laughs) Um, And of course, I was just like, I want a path. Give me something to do here. I tacked on an entrepreneurship minor because I had already taken a couple of comms classes that that counted towards it which was haphazard in the way that I chose it, but also became more meaningful as I kind of realized that business was an option for me. I wasn't interested in our business school. I never tried to be an econ major. I really did think I was going to be an academic coming out of whatever level of graduate school that I I was going to exit out of. And when that all changed was I spent a summer doing our archaeological field school in Guam, And that experience was amazing. I came away with several things that I, you know, thought, okay, I want to write about this. I want to publish this. I want to get something on my resume that I can go to with PhD programs and start applying. And I ran into several roadblocks. And I, at some point, I just kind of realized that there are places that appreciate youth, a certain level of inexperience, a certain level of of, uh, vitality and vigor, and high-level anthropology and archaeology specifically at, like, the PhD level is just not one of them. Mm. You know, it's not where you want to be really old and go into that right away. And so at that point, I I kind of sat back and, and thought, what if I don't go to graduate school right away? What if I don't go back to school and I go and work? And then I had to figure out what the heck I was going to do because unlike my current situation where I I have relocated back to North Carolina and I'm living out of my parents' house, moving back home was not an option. So it basically took a global pandemic for my parents to realize or, you know, allow me to, to come back home and spend some time with them. But, you know, after college, they did not want me back home. So I was like, I got to make money somehow. And that's when consulting kind of became something that, that, that I was interested in. It piqued my interest because you could get the feel for a lot of different industries. Mm. And then within that, HR kind of naturally fit with my background. Um, there's a lot of work within corporate culture that mirrored a lot of the work that I had done in cultural anthropology. And then I had the reading and writing down from philosophy. And so in a lot of ways, it, it fit really well. And, and that's kind of one of the things that I really like about where I work now is there's not, you know, we didn't all go to business school. There's a lot of diversity of thought mm-hmm. at Gardner is specifically within research and advisory, which is really nice. You are now a human resource advisory specialist. What does your role involve day to day? And we've talked about this a little bit, but what are some of the things you most enjoy about it? Yeah, I really enjoy our client work. So I'm working with clients day in, day out. A client might come to us with a question about, you know, future of work trends. They might think that they want to talk about, you know, what are other people in the industry doing when it comes to workforce planning. But what they really want to talk about is how do I transition all of my employees from this you know, in-office work experience to an entirely virtual experience? And where am I missing those thought processes? Now, they'll get on the phone with an advisor and they'll talk through, you know, what they're thinking about. And then we'll say, okay, it's good that you're thinking about X, Y, and Z. Now, I want you to think about that employee experience. What does that employee's work life look like now? Specifically, you want to focus on, you know, people who are parents, you know, you know, what does that look like for them? And so it's a lot of priming people to think about, you know, things that don't come naturally. 
that level of empathy isn't necessarily inherent in every business leader and it's no fault of theirs but you know that's the real impact that their decisions have so we'll routinely come to conversations equipped with not only our research but also that outside perspective and what's that like for those companies or their individuals of those companies who come to you and they think they're coming to you to solve a certain problem but then they they'll say what they're there to solve and you know with that experience you're thinking that's not really your issue right how do you get people to realize that what they're asking is not really what they're asking a lot of it's root causing so you're not too sure that means yeah uh, so people only know issues by what they see or hear Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a client will describe, you know, it's almost like, it's not like a doctor, like I'm not saving people, just to be frank. Um, (laughs) But the ache is in the knee, but the pain is coming from your ligaments in your thigh, that sort of thing. So, you know, without getting into super specifics, I think the way to, to think about root causing is you'll hear their beginning description of what they're going through, what's their organizational context. And then we'll ask priming questions to further scope out where we can lean in. Because there's only so many things that we can help them with. I can't help them with individual context for their organization. Nobody knows your company better than the client. Mm -hmm. And so that's where my capability ends and their capability begins. And so it's not my job to fix everything. It's more my job to help them strategically think about the solutions that are on the table and maybe help them select one or two or figure out a different plan than the one that they have. But that is the open-mindedness you have to have when you go into a call with a client, especially the first call. You have to be ready to talk about more broadly really anything that they're going through. And what are some priming questions you may ask? So... Let's see. I love questions. Yeah, no, questions are great. It it leans into the podcasting Mm -hmm. format. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, An interesting, you know, you'd pivot from one, you know, I heard you talk about this. I want to know what underlying cause may may cause that certain aspect, right? I don't know if any of this is going to make intelligible sense. Yeah, sounds great. Like, I'm trying to take the HR jargon and like, like, you know, not legalese, but specific points of reference out. So oftentimes when I'm hearing, you know, a client's going through their context and I'll be taking notes and certain words will prime me to ask certain questions. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, it's not indifferent to your job here as the host of this podcast. You'll hear me talk about, you know, my experience at Davidson Day with theater You'll say, all right, and go round back to theater after I finish talking to you about afar. And then you're adding to your list of things that you want to hit upon. And it's all the stronger if it comes from the client, the interviewee, you know, if you're able to tie it back to an earlier point about the Mm -hmm. conversation. And I think that that's a lot of it is that kind of conversation architecture, you know, more so than just asking certain questions. Because I... I originally wanted, when I walked into this job, I thought, I want a script, you know, very actory. I, I want a set of questions to ask. I want something that, you know, can um, initially endear me to them. You know, I want a set intro. Um, <laughs> and the more and more you get into it, the more and more you realize, like, it is different every time. No two organizations are going through the exact same thing in the exact same way. So even though you might have the same problem, even though our research might apply to both situations, the situations themselves are very different. And that's really my job as an advisor is to translate our research, our best practices to that organization. So they're coming to you with a problem, right, that they want solved. And so we're talking about you know, change in organizations and even on a personal level, change can be very hard. And what has working there taught you about change? So a a little bit more organizational context. Gartner purchased CEB or acquired corporate executive board, which is the company I originally started working for. Okay. So not only have I gotten sort of a crash course of change, through what I do day in, day out via my job, 
I've also seen an organization go through seismic changes. You know, the masthead literally changed. So when that happens, I sort of walked into the change happening and knew that I was walking into that. But for a lot of people that I worked alongside, it was, I've worked at CEB for 11 years, 20 years. Maybe I've never worked for another company. I don't know how this is going to go. Some people left and some people stayed, but I think on a personal level, change happens and affects us the same way on a personal level as it does as a group. Nobody is inherently comfortable with change. It's not like a thing that anybody inherently loves, but the better you are at dealing with it has a lot to do with your preparedness and then also your knowledge of what exactly is going to happen. So with organizations, you know, a lot of what we do is on a core level, moving and acting transparently and incorporating people's thoughts and inputs at the base level of an organization into what change is happening. That's so core and fundamental to not only the way organizations change, but also, you know, teams, groups of people, schools. What are some of the things that people could implement on a personal level if they are struggling with a change they want to make? I struggle with change about as much as everyone else. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I'm an, I'm an expert in this particular area, but what I've found works for me is changing processes mm. and recognizing. So through you know your journey of self-discovery or inward thought, what your weaknesses are, what you think you can change about yourself, and then what you, you, you realize you might not be able to. And that's a tough realization. I think that's a difficult conversation to have with yourself. It's an even more difficult conversation to have with other people, but the first one time you think about who am I as a person, what makes up myself, it's hard to say this thing is unchangeable about me. But once you know there are certain things that are about me that I just can't address at the moment, how do I make my life better by working around those things? That's the process. That's the process of change that can ultimately lead you to the goals that you want to achieve. And it's hard. It's harder for certain people to achieve the same things. And a lot of that has to do with things that are outside of our control. But you look at the elements that you can control in life and you try to make those changes. And it's those small changes that add up to the larger experience. That was beautifully said. I mean, I'd never really thought about it in that way before in terms of like, what are the things that you can't change at the moment? Like these, and just what are the workarounds? And I guess that's a, to do with acceptance. Like, you know, just being able to say, hey, like this particular thing, I just can't tackle this right now. Like it's for whatever reason, maybe down the road I can, I maybe put together some workarounds to <laughs> like mitigate whatever the issue is. It's a great way to look at it. And so talking more about organizations now, I'm really love geeking out on organizational changes. There are always people in organizations who are resistant to change. So how do you balance responding to naysayers and helping people sort of hold on to a vision? You might have a new vision for an organization. And then like, how do you work with people who are like, yeah, that's not going to work, no matter what it is? Compromise. <laughs> okay. In, in a word, it's compromise. And it's realizing that any singular person's vision is probably not the best ultimate end state for mm -hmm. an entire organization. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, there are visionaries that, for one reason or another, our culture idolizes, you know, thinking Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or, you know, insert strong-headed, you know, Thomas Edison. There are strong-willed people who make things happen and fit square pegs into round holes. But assume that you are not Apple, that you are not Tesla, that you're not General Electric. And take into consideration how meaningful change happens at a more common level, which is it needs 
backing from integral stakeholders. And oftentimes those naysayers are your integral stakeholders. And so listen to them, listen to what they're saying. And, and that's probably the first step to getting that result that you're looking for. Even when you have that, that clear vision that you can see and you can just see everything working in that one particular way, it'll all come together but it might all come together a little bit differently. And what's your advice to people? And so the, those who are listening, I'm sure, have someone either in their personal life or at work or wherever it may be, you know, that person who seems to put up roadblocks every time, you know, and you are doing the things, you are listening, you're, you're trying to bring them into the fold, but it doesn't seem to matter what you do. Like when you're working with companies, what advice do you give people about working with people like that? So it's hard because you can only you can only approach things from a rational perspective. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so my thought is that if you come to the table with a well thought out process of here are the things that I'd like to change and you've gotten broad approval and there's one person who's just holding out and you've talked to them and you've figured out like they really want something that you just can't compromise on. They recognize like when you're the last person holding out on something, you recognize that you're, you're the last person here. Like, are you, are you going to die on this hill? And like some people will die on that hill, but some people just need the space to recognize like I'm here Everyone else is there. Why am I here? Mm. Now, I routinely ask people, like, are you going to die on that hill? Like, are you sure this is worth what we're about to go through? And oftentimes, it's it's just not, you know? Now, that's one way to approach that. There are certainly several other ways, but, you know, I think that's the way that my charitable thought process of I don't think people are as evil or as bad or as, you know, terrible as as people tend to think they are, as other people tend to think they are. So uh, that might be my eternal optimist. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's bleeding through there. Can you define culture? Culture, if memory serves. Uh, Just the way that you understand it. I think of culture as a a group of shared norms, a, you know, common understanding of societal expectations. And like that shared norms aspect is really the crux of it in my mind. And then, you know, culture is what your organization, your country, your group of people do over and over and over again until people don't question why Mm. you do it over and over and over again. It just becomes the norm and like an unspoken norm in some ways. Academics would say that cultural change happens at such a slow pace that it's impossible to like be a change agent within a culture and like I accept that view. I, I think that's the right view for what you as an academic are talking about. But I think from an organizational perspective, from an HR or, or uh, you know, corporate perspective, my thought is that companies have culture. Culture is how people treat one another, how people feel when they bring up a difficult issue in the classroom or, you know, to their teacher or their counselor. You know, they're like, it's hard to define culture because in so many ways it's unfelt, but it dictates how we act in almost every facet of our lives. You know, over the years I've studied so much about leadership and culture. And and one of the things which is really fascinating when I became a head of school, right? And so you you hear so much about how that has a can have a tremendous influence on an organization. And it's something that as I've stepped into the role and have worked with some remarkable leaders and then 
I've worked with some people who weren't so remarkable, who just were horrible. It's just the, how deliberate I am and I think that leaders need to be on nearly everything that you do. And sometimes it's really helpful because it just makes me more mindful. Like I just can't just shoot off an email about something. Like mm-hmm. I need to really think about how this bill will be received, not from Pete the person, but is from like the head of the organization, you know, and and then also unpacking that people sort of overlay all these sort of intentions and things because they just say, you're doing this because of that. I'm like, well, no, but that's what you think. So there's reality in that. And it's just sort of navigating all of that is really interesting and just something which has really helped me just not speed through my day as much, right? Is really think, okay, how is this going to, what impact is this going to have? How do you decide to what level or to what degree you as a leader is abstracted from you as a person? That's a terrific question. I read a book, I forget the author years ago, maybe 10 years ago or something called Authentic Leadership. And it was just talking about how you, as much as possible, want to lead from the person you are. So there is not like one type of leader. There is not like there's, you know, we often think of the really charismatic leader and and you have to be that way. And so when I first became, you know, what's called a division head and, you know, I was leading a group of people and, and I sort of had to lead in a certain way. And over time, what I realized is that if I want to do this well, I just need to be me, right? And so what what am I good at? I think, and the feedback I've got is I'm good at connecting with people. I'm good at hearing people's concerns. I'm good at loving people, you know, and, and what fulfills me is helping them improve and get better and reach their dreams, whatever they may be. So, it's taken me a long time to feel comfortable doing that, especially like I'm 45 and, you know, a number of the people I supervise are all like, you know, older than me. Right. And so when, and especially when I first started, this is my first role as a head of school, but as an assistant head or a lower school head, just saying to people who are 20, 30 years older than me, like, what is it that really fulfills you? What, you know, what do you love to do on the weekends? What, what are your hopes and dreams? I felt a bit awkward. Like, I just like, oh, I just don't know if they're going to receive that well, thinking, oh, who's this young pup asking me these questions? And I've just, I worked with someone who is five years older than me. And so, when I first met him, we were the same age and he felt very comfortable in his skin doing that with people. Like, just like, yeah, I mean, I'm here to create the greatest version of you. What can I do? How can I help you? And so that sort of holistic view in terms of like where one ends and sort of the other begins, I think they're much more intertwined. And I try to be very authentic. Like this is who I am. Like I'm not putting on a mask. I actually am putting on a mask to come to work. You know, I'm not sort of pretending to be someone else. And I have worked with people in the past who have thought like, a leader is this, and then they come to work and you're like, but we hung out on Friday night and you were awesome and now you're like treating me like I don't really matter. Like, how is this? You know, so I think as I've got older, I've just got more comfortable saying, hey, like this is me as quirky and strange as I am and this is what I think is how I lead best is by helping others become better I understand the feeling of when you come to those conversations and you're giving people advice or, or trying to help them, right? Because I, I, at the crux of my job, I think of myself as helping people. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? So I will profess, I am not a big reader. I realize it's the thing that unites the people who lead the most, uh, like, like, you know, presidents read, um, <laughs> CEOs read. I just, I don't. But the books I recommend the most are Tuesdays with Maury. Mm-hmm. I think there's no better introduction to 
critical, empathetic like feeling for other people. Yeah. And then it's also, it's a book, candidly, I think is written for people who don't read books. Like Mitch Albom is a, who's the author? He's a sports writer. He writes in a way that's very engaging for the person who has very little attention span. <laughs> and on the opposite end of that spectrum is um, The Alchemist mm-hmm. by Paul Coelho, yeah. uh, I believe is how you say his name. And that's sort of, you know, a, a basic book that I I never read in school, but, you know, I think the core teaching of, or the thing that I got out of it was, you know, those base level thoughts and feelings that you had as a child, like chase those, like those are you at your purest form, which is a message that, you know, obviously resonates with me you know, to this day. I remember reading that a number of years ago and what sort of resonated with me is I feel like I'm a, a 10 year old trapped in a, an adult's body. It's yeah. like that sort of childlike wonder and I guess passion for learning goes back all the way to then is it's just a, it's a really powerful thing to be aware of is like what did you love to do when you had uninterrupted time as a child like what did you like oh i got to do this today sometimes it's amazing how far we get away from that and we haven't thought for the longest time like what do i just love to do if i have nothing to do yeah and talking about that what are some of the things that you love to do in your free time so I, I discovered a love of cars. Oh, <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, I, I'm a big car nut. And like growing up in Mooresville, you're surrounded by cars. But I I didn't really appreciate how much I liked automobiles and really the people and culture surrounding the, the stories behind cars until well after high school and into college. But it's not so much the technical aspect. It's like the people connection to it. So that's my thing. I like to go drive and and go to car shows and stuff. And what opened that door for you? So let's see. Nobody in my family is really into cars. It started out with like loving the show Top Gear. Oh, yeah. And I think anyone who watches Top Gear probably watches it for the hosts and not the cars themselves. But I think from that came an appreciation of like car people, car personalities, mm-hmm. the like a kind of eccentric personalities that revolve <laughs> around them. Yeah. And that's like what I really love about cars. Like it's not so much, you know, V12 engines and, and you know, turbochargers. And I, I love all of those things, but it's less about that and more about the people who choose to build them or make their lives like around those things. Yeah. And what is your unlimited resources? What would be the car you would get? <sighs> So, you know, there's no good way to answer this because real car people will say like, oh, like, you know, there are faster cars. There Mm -hmm. are more soulful cars. There are, that car's too expensive. You know, like, you know, it it, it probably is. Having never driven most of the cars that I would love to drive, if I can own one car for the rest of my life and drive it around and also never have to service it, Mm -hmm. like never have to see the bill to service it, I'd probably drive a McLaren F1. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? There are a lot of things that I wish I could learn. Speed reading would actually probably be a pretty handy one. But I've always I've always wanted to learn how to play the harmonica. No reason why, no no rhyme or reason. I have no idea why. You could probably say like it'd be better to learn how to play the piano or something. No, I'm like no. I want to be able to play the harmonica and just whip that out whenever, wherever. I think it'd be fun. Uh, you know, in some ways, I envision an older me playing the harmonica and like annoying the crap out of, you know, my kids. Yeah. It's just so portable. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yep. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? For me, it's probably been slowing down, learning how to slow myself down so much of i think my childhood and then also young adulthood has been running from one 15 minute appointment to the next or like we schedule our lives 15 minute blocks at a time and like i think from my last year in college to now i have really cherished unscheduled, unfettered, like, 
do whatever you want time. And it comes at a premium. Like you, you, you have to make room for it. But for someone who it doesn't come natural to slow down because I've, I've given myself the things that I need to accomplish in my head, slowing down purposefully has been sort of the best habit for me to stay sane. And it's become all the more important when I have nowhere to go. And like all I have is, you know, four walls and a door in my apartment. And then now my house. But like, you know, you spend time just in your own head. Yeah. It's hard to do, man, slowing down. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing how much effort it takes to slow down. Yeah. The last question I have is what inspires you? I think in some ways, like, your appreciation for your parents is a bit of a bell curve. It's the highest when you're completely dependent on them. And then as you get more and more independent, you find their faults. You find the things that, you know, the best quote is like, oh, the, I'll, I'll never do this to my kid. The things that you would do differently when raising your child. And then as you get older, you round back to what they did that shaped you into the person you are for the better. Yeah. And you appreciate those things more than all of the smaller petty things that, you know, used to matter a lot more, but now they're just kind of, they're there, you know? And I'm in that bell curve that's on the rising on the second, it's on the second rise. And so more and more I'll find that the smaller things that my parents do, I'm appreciating. And it's inspirational in that I aspire to be more and more like them in certain ways than I ever did before. My parents are good people. You know, you you always think like, I've always thought they're fundamentally good people, but as far as inspirational figures in my life, I'm not sure that they've ever been more inspirational than they are right now. The conversation has been incredible. I feel privileged to have had this time with you and I'm sure people will love sort of hearing from you. So thanks again for all your time. It's been wonderful to meet you. It's a joy to be back here. I've really enjoyed this conversation as well. So yeah, and then just think you have hundreds more alumni to interview. So you better get working on it. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.